Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Over the course of three seasons of The Catch, I've been lucky to work with great local reporters who guide me through these complex fishery stories. They've done everything from help in setting up interviews, showing me around, offering protection when needed, and in Eskild's case, offering a window into fishing life itself. Throughout our journey together, Eskild reminds me that those guys working on the boats, those people hauling in the nets, that's him. On this day, I'm very glad to be with Eskild, since again, he's able to provide me a way into Norway's fishing world one that I would have a hard time cracking on my own. Today, we're heading to a town very much like the one he grew up in. And as usual, we're on the road bordering the sea as we head to an interview. And you guessed it, we're talking about cod. They go into the Barents Sea uh, after they spawn along the coast of Norway. I've asked them to explain to me the difference between the two main populations found here, coastal cod versus Arctic cod. They go back and they feed for a couple of years in the Barents Sea. And then they come back and when they are like mature and can start spawning themselves, they will come back and spawn along the coast. Oh, I see. So it's the density of this spawning, wherever it happens along the coast, that will decide where the biggest, best fishery will be. All through the rest of the year, people have been surviving on this coastal cod. That is not as big, not as fat, and, uh, and all these different cods have these migrating systems that is always affected by the climate and by the presence of other species that they feed on. Cod, like all creatures, is dependent on the food it eats, on the health of its ecosystem, and of course, it's feeling the brunt of human-caused climate change. There are factors affecting these fish too, take market forces, supply and demand. More on that later on this episode. You're listening to The Catch, a podcast from foreign policy about the seafood we eat and the impact it can have on our world. I'm Ruxandra Guidi. Today, episode four of Cod and Country. How do the economics of fishing shape a country's identity and vice versa? We're driving for an hour or so, then we take a ferry from one fjord to an island and arrive in Raidnoy at around 11 a.m. Elizabeth Johansson, not related to Eskild, in Johnny Eliasson's home is a two-level white house, the only one in miles. This is a very sparsely populated place. There are fewer than 250 people in this island of 60 square miles. For many generations, people here made their living off the land and the sea by herding sheep and fishing, though that's changed dramatically in the last decade or so. You can fish, you can but, fish it's, but it's, it's not, not, not like before. It's not the same. Elizabeth and Johnny offer us breakfast. We're having hard-boiled eggs, 
cloudberry jam from the hills behind their house, and smoked herring. It's from the store, not from here. Johnny can barely go out fishing anymore. The fish just aren't there as much. I'm always fishing there. My father, my grandfather, mm. all use fishing there. Mm. And, and no, I fish little there, but, but it's not funny. So you would have to go farther from the coast? Yes. How yeah. far would you need to go to get you see the red boat. Johnny is pointing to a medium-sized boat, similar to Svein Harald Holmes, that was undergoing repairs in Varda from the last episode. The kind of vessel you'd take further out at sea, not just between the islands or fjords. You, you know, in, in this countryside, they didn't have big boat. Mm-hmm. They have a, a farm and they are fishing close. Johnny tells me how traditionally, People couldn't afford big vessels or larger docks here, so they had these small boats using nets to catch cod and halibut close to the coast. But not anymore. They blame it on the open-water salmon farms. You can see them peppering the coasts between the islands, completely encircling them and going up and down Norway's coast. There are these big round pens, 10 or 12 or more of them next to one another, Each of the pens can contain up to 200,000 adult salmon. Aquaculture is the fastest growing food production sector in the world, expected to generate more than 100 million tons of seafood by 2030. Norway is undoubtedly the biggest producer of farmed fish of all. It's a very profitable business. Farm salmon exports is their top industry valued second only to oil and gas. And it is vital to these small communities in the north especially. Salmon and trout farming started about 50 years ago as a side gig for farmers and fishers living along the coasts. But in the time since, big corporations have stepped in. We can see one of those big facilities out the dining room window. Johnny says that other towns further inside the fjord didn't agree to the farms, and they were able to keep them at bay. They said, said no, but I think no? it's five years, they will try again, they try again. They never, they never give up. According to Johnny and Elizabeth, there's now a process led by the Sami parliament that will require local authorities to consult with local communities in Sami indigenous interests before opening up new areas to fish farming. Elizabeth knows all about that process, Until very recently, she was a council member here, and she was opposed to the fish farms. Why? For one, the pens physically line parts of the coast and get in the way of the smaller fishing boats. The high concentration of salmon means that their waste gets out of the pens and pollutes the water. If there are sick fish in there, they can spread disease to other fish populations, and their soy-based feed can also spread to outside of these pens, which could lead to wild fish becoming dependent on the food. Johnny pulls up his cell phone to show me a picture of a cod he'd caught some time ago. He sliced open its belly, revealing a fistful of compressed soy pellets. I'm sorry you are eating, but... No, no. Oh! Yeah. This is this? Yes. Oh. Yeah. So this, is, this, this stuff here is like oh, coming disgusting. out of the... Yeah. Yes, it's... Oh. I put it And this, this is some stool pellets. Mm. So it's as no. if it doesn't get no. out. And sometimes... It's Yes, it's adapted to the pelag- pelagic mm. species, this... Uh, alltså det är, pelag- det är fisk. Ja. 
Toshkin species, the, the cod eat it, but it doesn't affect the cod. Ecologists agree that fish are more intelligent than most people give them credit for. They experience pain and can suffer from being in these overcrowded farms. We know that their hearts can rupture from growing too fast. But fish behavioral research and industry regulations move slowly, not as fast as this huge industry demands, despite Norway having some of the strictest regulations for fish farms. Everyone we spoke to agrees that the growth of this industry has been dramatic in Norway. It brings in an estimated $150 billion a year. This is big business we're talking about, though some people have been left on the sidelines. For years, Elizabeth fought against the expansion of the farms, but she found herself alone. And you're no longer involved in, in local politics? No, I quit uh, now, this year. This year? Yes, in, in autumn, yeah. Do you in mind September. If, yeah, do you mind if I ask you why? <laughs> you got tired of it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. How come? I, a... I don't feel they are listening. Theirs is the last sheep farm on the island. Just staring. The last day of their lives. Oh, jeez, yeah, that's true. <laughs> By now, we've finished breakfast and it's noon. And Johnny and Elizabeth need to get their animals out of one area and into their pen. So Eskild and I come along. It's starting to rain. Johnny and Elizabeth are wearing their big rubber boots and raincoats. They're ready for the mud. Their sheepdogs, border collies, are tagging along, and they're amazing to watch as they listen to a myriad of commands and run around like mad towards the sheep, forcing them to stick to one another and to head back towards the barn. We pass by a small one-level house. Uh, oh, the school. Oh, yes. It's closed now. Yes. Uh, because there's no kids. No kids. <laughs> Yeah, but not because you so, so the teachers got lonely. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Imagine going to that school. My mother went wow, to yeah. a school similar to that on the other side of the island. Very small. She walked, there were no roads. Wow. Norway had this massive development. When? 50s? 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah. But I mean, it's very difficult to connect these fjords and these landscapes. Yeah, oh yeah. It's, We stay close to Elizabeth and Johnny as they gather all the stragglers. The sheep seem confused by Eskild and I, like they don't know who they should be following. And then Elizabeth closes the gate to the barn. They have a long day ahead. Tomorrow, they say, they'll send these sheep to the butcher. We take the same road back, and now I can see the salmon farms outside their village much more clearly. You have to focus on the horizon because otherwise they're barely visible in the water. We see a monument off the side of the road that begs you to pay attention. It looks like the famous Little Mermaid bronze statue in Copenhagen, except this one is made of cement. And it was made by Elizabeth's daughter, actually. She's got her back to the salmon farms and she's covering her eyes as if she's weeping. I'll translate it for you. Okay. It was made by, uh, his name is Edmund Edvarsson. He was my old, uh, university teacher. There's a plaque by her feet uh, with a poem, and Eskild translates it for me. Uh, okay, sea and land went hand in hand for all the years. Now I'm sitting here with my back 
uh, with my back to it and I feel shame. I'm covering my eyes because, because I see everything inside of me. Will these fjords soon be lost? I walk away from the statue and towards the water, stepping on rocks covered in thick algae. And I'm standing by the edge, facing the salmon farms. I can't spot a single person at the facility, nor any boats fishing nearby. Fish farms are the future, whether we like it or not. And it turns out a lot of Norwegians are big proponents of the industry. I was quite negative about salmon farming. I thought, oh, farmed fish, it's very unhealthy probably. And uh, I basically had a very negative impression of also how farms were run. But I think I was surprised by um, also how professionally managed this is and also that it does appear more healthy to me than I initially thought. This is Iria Vormedal. She's an aquaculture researcher at the Fridtjof Nansen's Institute. She says her research into farmed salmon helped debunk a lot of myths about the industry. You know, if I go to a dinner party and people hear that I uh, do research on salmon, uh, a lot of people say, oh, why do you eat farmed salmon? Why wouldn't you eat wild salmon? And I say, well, you know, I think about 90% of the salmon that you can buy in the store is farmed. So there's a big myth around the availability of wild salmon and sort of the, um, uh, I don't know, the positive uh, aspect of eating a wild salmon. Um, finally, I think a lot of people believe that there's a lot of toxins in farmed salmon. Uh, but today, actually, the case is that the wild fish has more environmental toxins than the farm fish because they eat, you know, our oceans and the sea is polluted. Uh, and the wild fish they eat can eat anything from the sea. Iria offers another important insight. In Norway, she says, there's no stigma attached to aquaculture. There's a lot of pride uh, related to fish farming. Most people are proud of the product they make, the sustenance it provides, and the economic stability it offers. This is why the Norwegian government actively supports the fish farms. We have something called the Fish Farming Fund. And this actually channels government money back to the local communities. So the more salmon they produce, the more the tax income gets channeled back to the local community. This has also helped, I think, building these communities further and sort of entrenching the local support for really expanding salmon farming. These farms are omnipresent here. According to the FAO, the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, globally farmed salmon amounted to roughly $10 billion in profits in 2022. I just had to see one in person so Eskild obliged, even though it meant getting an almost off-the-record tour of a private business. I meant turn too early. Through Eskild's friend of a friend, we managed to get inside one of those fish spawning facilities. I can't tell you where it was, nor who showed us around, but I can confirm that we took a lot of winding roads to get there. I also can't tell you what this company is, but I did record some sounds from our little tour and can describe to you what we saw. 
because it made a big impression on us. So how many people work here? This place runs like a well-oiled machine with great efficiency. It's almost fully automated. We run into the occasional worker on shift, though we hear there are fewer workers here than you can count with both hands. We start in the nursery, where there are these narrow drawers lining the room's walls. When you open them, you can see hundreds of baby salmon in there in the dark. They get fed regularly, and as they grow, they go into other containers. It's like a maze inside the facility, with one room leading to the next. It's a noisy environment because there are water tanks for the salmon as they grow out of their baby drawers and into bigger pools full of salt water. Machines drop food into the tanks with great precision. And as they get bigger, the salmon is highly vulnerable to disease. So they go into a room where they get vaccinated. Yep, it's like an assembly line. And as each little fish comes up, a needle injects them with vaccines for up to seven different common illnesses. It's an impressive operation. The equipment is top of the line. And when the salmon here get big enough, they'll be taken by boat to adult fish farms, like the one we saw in Raidnoy, across the way from Elizabeth and Johnny's farm. This industry is only expected to grow globally. The demand is so great. Other countries, like Chile, are learning how to do it from the Norwegians, too. And whether we like it or not, aquaculture is here to stay. Well, it's long been here. Fish farming was common throughout the world for centuries. It was documented in the Amazon basin before the Spaniards arrived. And back in the 18th century, Captain Cook noted how indigenous peoples in Hawaii maintained large shrimp farms. Today, much of the seafood you consume is being farmed. Shrimp, catfish, tilapia, oysters, and someday, maybe cod though there's skepticism over whether or not that's possible. It's uh, an individualist that wants to be in the wild, it seems. Again, Norwegian fish farm researcher Iria Vormedal. They have had several phases of uh, experimentation with the cod farming. And I think the last was t about 10 years ago. And what they... What they experienced was that the cod is much harder to domesticate than salmon. The cod managed to tear up in some way the net pens and escape from them in a way that the salmon wasn't able to. That was one thing. And the other problem was that they developed disease problems um, that weren't treatable with antibiotics or other medicines. But that's what I hear, that they've sort of given up the attempt to farm the cod we may feel inclined to root for cod's independence. Yet most experts believe aquaculture is a necessary step towards meeting global food demands. Plus, according to Iria, aqua farms are a lot more environmentally friendly, at least in Norway, when compared to many of their counterparts on land. Carbon emissions from beef, chicken and pork is much larger than from salmon farming. So often the salmon farming industry uses this as sort of a positive argument uh, to legitimize salmon farming in an environmental context. Near Elizabeth and Johnny's farm, 
Eskild and I met someone who thinks salmon farms are not just helping address a growing demand for salmon, they're also generating much-needed jobs. His name is Jan Johansson, also not related to Eskild, and his restaurant is a Direktorn Bistro, where most of the food is locally produced. This place, I live in about 2,200 people out here on six islands. This island is the biggest and here is the, the center and, and everything needs to be handled from here. So despite this region's sparse population, the farmed fish industry is thriving. There are approximately 130 salmon farms and two salmon spawning facilities in this region. Jan loves having locally farmed salmon for his restaurant. I think that's a very, very good idea. Therefore, we prepared from the start. We got full fish inside and everything is so clean and so good. The quality is 100%. That said, Jan tells us he doesn't think farms should expand indefinitely along the fjords because he believes the culture and the character of this part of northern Norway would be destroyed if that were to happen. I agree that we are stopped now to put out more nets until we can control it in a better ways and check everything outside in the, in the, in the sea. And if uh, um, I would a bit confused <laughs> to your listening, I, I watching the soccer you game on TV. <laughs> Jan is distracted while he's talking to us because he's watching a soccer game on a huge TV. It's an important game, he says, and he can't miss it because his team, Tromsø, is playing a rival team in the south. If we get a little close to a goal, you should Yeah, it was. Um, it's the wrong team. <laughs> <laughs> like everywhere else, this region has pride for its sports teams, but also for its local cuisine and its fishing traditions. Jan is something of a local ambassador for all of it, it seems. When he isn't at his restaurant, he moonlights as a singer-songwriter. And as we wrap up our interview, he tells us he'd like to share a song he wrote about a fisher. By the way, his eyes are still glued to the soccer game on TV while his song is playing. I don't speak Norwegian, but I get that it has something to do with a drunk fisher who miraculously doesn't lose his catch. Yeah, they smash the boat, and they need to uh, to survive, of course. So it was a boating accident? Yeah, yeah. Bo boat accident. And, and uh, of course, they have a lot of fish, and, uh, and therefore I say uh, that people are going to be rich, mm -hmm. and that uh, crazy guy from the north survive. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> And with that, Eskild and I decide to leave Jan to finish watching his soccer game in peace. While Jan may have dreams of the past, Norway and its fishing industry is quickly moving to adapt to climate and geopolitical realities. Fishers must contend with fluctuations in quotas, fishing rights, and who gets to duck where. Looming over everything, is a decades-old agreement between Norway and Russia that needs to be maintained and strengthened. So how can this be achieved? Keep your head down and stick to the science, says Sergei Senikov. Sergei is the chief sustainability officer for Norebo, one of Russia's largest fishing companies, 
We'll hear more from him in our next episode. The backbone of this cooperation is two agreements that were entered between Russia and Norway in 1975 and 1976 on scientific research cooperation. And the current cooperation is still based on those treaties. Next time on The Catch, there may be a happy ending to many fisher stories, especially if there's a lot to catch and the fish stocks are healthy. But as we've told you before, the work is hard and unpredictable. And when you have to sort out quotas and politics, not just within the same country, but between countries, it gets increasingly complicated. So what does politics have to do with it? And that's it for part four of The Catch. Our show is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with the Walton Family Foundation. Our production team includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, and Evan Munoz. Special thanks to my co-reporter, Eskild Johansson, and also thanks to our translator, Anton Loboda. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, or head over to foreignpolicy.com where you can listen to our other podcasts and sign up for our newsletter. Thank you for listening. I'm Ruxandra Guidi. See you next week.